and only true King. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, praise team. Amen. It was a wonderful, wonderful uh, walk down memory lane a few minutes ago with that wonderful old medleys. Praise God. I'm just surprised you didn't include in there, I'm a one God, apostolic, tongue-talking, whole Rome, born again, heaven-bound believer, liberated power of Jesus' name. I've been washed in the by the Spirit. Pardon me if I'm out of shape. Something like that. Hallelujah. Oh, clap your hand to the Lord. That's going way back in the 70s. Hallelujah. Walking down memory lane. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm not going to sing another little song. Thank you. Hallelujah. You have done a fine job. Wasn't this wonderful? Did you enjoy that? Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. This time I want to dismiss the youth class and kids ministry. You're free to go to your classes. Have a good time in the Lord. Keep Jesus in the center circumference of your life. Lesson. Everything. It's about Jesus. Hallelujah. It's all about the Lord. You know, back in the Garden of Eden, it was all about God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, it was all about self. That's what happened. And ever since then, it's been all about our flesh and everything we want, not what God wants. And the born experience is to bring us back in alignment with the will of God and His fellowship that we lost back in the Garden of Eden. Sister uh, Courtney, yeah, she's going down to Kismet's team. That was a great presentation this morning. Uh, amen. And... Uh, She's, uh, she's done a fine job. I, I really appreciate her representing Global Missions. Uh, and incidentally, yeah, I was looking at that video clip from the Paces. They were from Illinois, from Brother Brent Brosom's church up in Joliet before they went overseas, and they did a fantastic job. Uh, but just this past couple of weeks, I've had uh, some old videos on video cassettes that I've had digitalized. And <clears throat> one of those uh, little memory sticks included a clip from the old Vienna church in Vienna, Austria, when we first went over the missions field. Uh, we lived in Vienna for a year and a half, and, and we attended that church. But you should see where they started from, what little building they had. And, uh, and you see the crowd, maybe a couple dozen people, and then you see this. And we were there for the dedication of this building, and just five years ago, Brother and Sister Poole and my wife and I were there to minister uh, in that church and, and throughout Europe uh, on, that, on our visit that year. But it'd be interesting to walk down memory lane and show a clip of that, where they, where they came from. Amen. But uh, it's amazing. God is doing great things. Hallelujah. Oh, do you love the Lord today? Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. He's, he's good. We've had so many busy things uh, going on. This past, by the way, Proverbs 22, 28 is where I'm going. You can get there and you can put that on the screen. You can sit down in just a moment. Uh, but since I came back from my overseas trip, it was a trip to Chicago afterwards and it's been running constantly, seems like. We even had a midweek baby dedication service, Madeline uh, and, and uh, Riley, praise the Lord. Uh, and... Uh, and, and uh, Johnston, and uh, it, it was it was wonderful. It was amazing, and, and she's here right now. Praise God! But um, it's been one thing after another. And tomorrow we're leaving for general conference in Orlando, Florida, and still on. 
uh, in Orlando. They suffered minimal damage, but pray for our meeting there. It's going to be one of the largest gatherings in my recent memory. They have over 15,000 registrants. So um, uh, that, that, is, that is good news. And uh, we have only about 11,100 some ministers in UPCI in North America. That's just us in Canada. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't include worldwide. Uh, but in any case, uh, most of, of the ministers, from what I understand, are going to be there. And uh, many national, international representatives. So I pray for that meeting. We have some important things to decide. And a lot of great things will happen. Hallelujah. I love this fellowship. I love this movement. I'm glad to be a part of the Apostolic Church, who is affiliated with the United Pentecost Church International. 199 countries, 31 territories. Uh, that is uh, an incredible feat. We have 43,000 plus churches, daughter works, and preaching points worldwide, five and a half million constituents. That's a, a, a big accomplishment since 1945 when we merged some of the Pentecostal movements. And that's just the 20th century. You know, every generation has its task. Every generation has its, has its battles to fight. And every generation had its commission to preach the gospel to every creature. And uh, this message of one God apostolic, Holy Ghost filled life and message has always been around for the last 2,000 years. And more than ever before now in the last days, and we're living in great times of revival. This is end time revival. In case you didn't realize, we are in the last days. It was in the last days when the Pentecostal experience first occurred uh, in the early book, uh, early church in the book of Acts, and it's still the last days. We're now in the last moments of the last days. Amen. Last days also the era, but the last days, we're at the end of this age, and, uh, and I'm going to address some of that this morning. Proverbs 22, 8, as we celebrate our godly heritage. The book of Proverbs 22, verse 8, 28 rather, excuse me. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Very simple statement. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. My simple message this morning is don't touch the landmarks. Don't move the landmarks. Hallelujah. Don't touch it. Don't move it. Don't mess with it. They're there for a reason. Lord God, we worship you, we praise you, we magnify your name. We pray that your perfect will be accomplished in our midst. Lord, I pray for every heart and every mind that they would be open unto you and to the ministering of the word and your spirit. We look to you, Lord God, for in ourselves we can do nothing. And we pray now that your spirit would search our hearts. And Lord, work in the hearts of them that would receive you. And those that would receive your word. And that faith would come in them, O oh Lord. And respond to your call. Respond to the work that you want to do in their life. And we're going to give you all the praise and the glory, Lord. For it's all about you. It's your kingdom. It's your message. It's your power. It's your healing that you're working in our midst. Only you can change our lives and no one else. So we give you the glory and the praise this morning in Jesus' name. Let the church please say amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you for standing so long. Amen. I'll be standing longer. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. Sister Valerie, good to see you this morning. Hallelujah. Amen. And Caleb, yes. I see you survived the crucible. 
Hallelujah. The Crucible of Marine Corps. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, I've got a video of that, an hour and a half video presentation that I purchased from PBS. And they take you uh, through Marine Corps boot camp from day one all the way to the graduation. And, uh, and I'll tell you the last week and, and this three-day process where you get sleep deprivation, only spend four hours awake at the most. And, uh, and then you have to go through 29 stations uh, where a team of four Marines accomplish a certain task that they're assigned at each one of those specific stations. And they're designed specifically for a purpose. And none of those tasks can be accomplished by yourself. It promotes teamwork and it gauges and tests and tries those groups to see how well they can work together. And it teaches them that on the battlefield, your buddy next to you is the one you depend on and you have to watch each other because the bottom line is you're fighting for each other. Hallelujah. And each one of those 29 stations is named after a Marine that has given ultimate sacrifice. And you're told that, see, this, that there's a man or a woman, but there's, there, there's somebody that sacrificed your life for this country. But here's the thing. So if you give your life, so you'll never be forgotten. You'll be one of us. You'll be a Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. You will be one of us. Hallelujah. You will never be forgotten. So, so when you become a Marine, you get the globe on anchor. Amen. Now you see those guys, tears streaming down their face. Because the first time in their life, those men and even women have received affirmation that they're a man. That's one of the things that is missing in the world today. Men need affirmation. Men need affirmation. And I'm glad for the Marine Corps, what they do. And also the great service that they provide for our country. And it's a special outfit. I was Air Force myself. My son, as you know, was Marine for 11 years too. And, uh, and I, I respect them highly and admire their, their commitment. And, you know, it just, just reminded me that if the Marine Corps can turn 18, 19-year-old men to Marines, then the church can make 18 or 19-year-old disciples. Yeah. 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 Hallelujah. Yeah. These men are willing to lay their lives on the line for a worldly commitment. And how much greater is the kingdom of God? How much greater is the kingdom of God? We just have to cast the vision and let them see that this kingdom is worth living for and it's worth dying for. Can you say amen? amen. Praise God. Well, hallelujah. All that from the Marines. There's a lot of great lessons, spiritual lessons you can learn from the Marine Corps and service. Amen. I sure did. Remove not the ancient landmark which the fathers have set. And we're talking about our heritage and landmarks in our biblical worship uh, is, is all about landmarks. We are familiar with landmarks even today because uh, back then it was, uh, you know, uh, a reference point used uh, to uh, not only give directions, but also mark proper lines between neighbors. When Joshua uh, led Israel first into the land of Canaan, and according to God's direction, allocated the land per tribe and per family, landmarks of stone, mostly stone, sometimes pillars were set up to mark the property lines and the boundaries between tribal lands and family lands. 
And God took those boundaries very seriously. It was God, after all, who gave those directions to his people uh, through Joshua. And, uh, and so uh, God considered those uh, to be very important things that Israel should observe at all times. In fact, so much so that God even pronounced a curse upon those who violated those boundaries. And uh, in fact, the word transgression uh, comes from this concept of, of crossing a line. Transgression. It's crossing that boundary line. It's crossing that line, amen, that God had established and God has set. Now, we can look at the boundary lines with respect to land and, and property lines, but it also refers to boundaries in the spiritual sense. And this is why transgression is a concept that is based upon these boundary lines. And aren't you glad that he was wounded for our transgressions? Yes. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. And he was bruised for our iniquities. But it was God who set these boundaries. And when the Israelites entered the promised land of Canaan, God was the one who gave them directions to where to set those landmarks. And those landmarks were to remain undisturbed and were not to be encroached upon. And not only in that generation, but for all succeeding generations to come. And when God established those landmarks, they were to stay there and remain there. Notice the Bible refers to these landmarks as ancient landmarks, which the fathers have set. You know, uh, before you move a landmark, before you remove it and you destroy it, you better think twice because you're messing with history. You're messing with your roots. You're messing with your identity. And you're messing with some things that God has done. But now I'm not just speaking about earthly boundaries. I'm talking about spiritual boundaries as well. That's really what I'm getting to. Uh, I'm speaking about landmarks that was laid by the early church 2,000 years ago. Now, when we talk about the landmarks from Proverbs 22:28, it referred to the landmarks that Joshua established as Israel marched into the Can land of Canaan about 1,500 years before Christ. It's 3,500 years ago. Now, Israel's a country again, and those lines aren't there. In fact, they're barely back in their own country after uh, 70-some years. And uh, that is a prophetical fulfillment in itself. But there's no tribal allocations. Uh, and Israel's not really what, uh, what it was back in Jesus' days. But uh, when Jesus comes back, he will allocate the land again in the way he wants. When he sets up his millennial reign and he sets up his throne in Jerusalem, when, when we reign with him as kings and priests in his kingdom, amen, then we will see Israel, the 144,000, reoccupy that land and divided that territory as the way that Jesus would have them uh, live. Praise God. But then after 3,500 years, now I'm moving on to 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about the landmarks that the early church had laid. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, that chief cornerstone that was laid. The way they used to build buildings in the old days, as you know, that cornerstone set the direction in every direction for, for the building, the foundation. And the building that was built upon it 
all depended upon that foundation. That foundation had to be right. It had to uh, be exact. It had to be enough to support the weight that was coming on top of it. And so in in a spiritual sense, the book of Ephesians tells us uh, that we, the church, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is why the New Testament is so important. It's not just the Gospels of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also the Acts of the Apostles, which is how the Apostles acted upon the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the letters that they wrote, the eight different uh, writers of the New Testament, uh, amen, they were the ones that God used to to build upon the foundation that Jesus established uh, by the work of Calvary. And then, of course, the outpouring of his spirit in the book of Acts, in in Acts chapter 2. And so that is the foundation that was laid. And, and so when we look at Christian behavior, Christian life, Christian doctrine, Christian experience, everything has to be filtered through apostolic doctrine um, based upon the foundations that were set by the early church. And folks, it's either right or it's wrong. Hallelujah. May I tell you that that the apostles are not to be judged by various church doctrines today, but every church doctrine is to be judged by what the apostles laid down in the foundation. Because if you're not building right according to the foundation, then it's wrong. No one has a right to change the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's his church. The Bible said that it was he who shed his blood and purchased the church, amen, with his own blood. Hallelujah. No particular church bled for it. No particular church purchased it with sinless blood. It was only the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his church. It doesn't belong to anybody else. And I don't have a right to change the doctrine, and neither does any other church. We have got a written record, and we've got a standard to go by. We've got an ancient landmark. It's right here. It's very clear, and the lines of demarcation are very clear to understand. And so we've got to follow that. And so I want to just address a few of the landmarks of the kingdom of God that the apostles had laid down, even the Israelites of the Old Testament, spiritual boundaries and landmarks. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You've heard it before. You'll keep on hearing it. You know, it's, it's funny. We may think that we heard it so many times, but in Hebrew, uh, the, uh, the, the parents were encouraged to, to say that to their children morning, night, and noon, and then some. When you get up in the morning, when you walk by the way, when you uh, sit down at home and whatever you do, it says, when you walk by the way, instruct them. Repeat this verse to them. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And don't forget, hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. And you know the apostles picked up that mantle as well. In 1 Timothy 3, 16, Timothy is written to by Paul. The apostles are without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. But remember, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God One single God was manifest in one single flesh, and his name is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.19, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is the wonderful message that he has given us to tell others. That's the New Living Translation of 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ. 
Christ, the invisible God, invisible humanity, the spirit inside the flesh, God the Father in his sonship, his body that he occupied, the only body that he ever occupied. Ephesians 4, 4 and 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Listen, there's only one God. That's an ancient landmark. Don't let anybody tell you that there are three or there are ten or there are other gods. For Jesus is the only one. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Jesus is the way. He is the only Lord and God and Savior. Can you say praise the Lord? Yes, there's only one God. That's a landmark. But the landmark also is this Bible. I mentioned it already. It's the Word of God. Jesus said in his prayer for his disciples in John 17, 17, he said, Father, sanctify them through thy word or thy truth. Thy word is truth. Amen. In John 5, 39, Jesus refers to the Bible. He says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The New Living Translation says this, you search the scriptures because you believe that they give you eternal life. Now, he's saying this to the Pharisees. And they were great searchers of the scripture. But they were rejecting what they had, were reading. And so, again, he says to them, you search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life. That's true. But the scriptures point to me, Jesus said. Hallelujah. And yet, you refuse to come to me so that I can give you this eternal life. Hallelujah. It's one thing to have a Bible. It's one thing to have a landmark. It's one thing to have it in your possession. It's another thing to follow it. It's one another thing to obey it. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This Bible, this book is the word of God. It is the lamp under my feet, the light under my pathway. And same for you. It was given by God to you and I so that our faith can be born and increase and get stronger. Hallelujah. See, especially in these last days, that's so important. The landmark of the word of God. Then there's, of course, the doctrine of salvation. That is a landmark. It's receiving redemption, deliverance. From the consequences and the penalty of sin. That's what salvation is and deliverance. But you need faith to receive it. And that's why in Hebrews eleven six 6 says, But without faith, it's impossible to please him. Because they that come to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's part of the foundation. That's part of the landmark. Amen. That you've got to believe before you can receive anything from God. And let me just tell somebody who's here today, if you came here with a need, if you came here with sickness in your body, if you came here with a financial need, if you came here with some kind of crisis in your life, I can tell you that Jesus has the answer but you're not going to get anything without faith you're going to have to release that faith on the inside of you even as you hear the word of God preached to you you're going to have to have an open mind and an open heart because God only responds to faith I said God only responds to faith 
And however God responds is determined by the degree and the level of faith that you show towards him. So release your faith. Open your heart. Open your mind. Amen. And whatever you have need of, he already knows. Just ask. Just ask. And when it comes to salvation, again, faith is indispensable. Faith, hallelujah, in the work of the cross. Faith in the death of Jesus Christ, which we experience in repentance. When you repent of your sin, you identify with his death. When you're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you identify with his burial. When you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues, and the Spirit of God gives the utterance to each and every one that truly repents and turns to God and receives this salvation and the power of the resurrection. Amen. You are identifying with the resurrection, not just identifying with it. You're actually receiving the power of that resurrection. For the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that if you have the Spirit, amen, that raised Christ from the dead living in you, then God, by the same Spirit that lives in you, will also resurrect your body. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And no wonder, Paul says in Romans 8, 9 also, that if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's part of the foundation. That's part of our Christian landmarks. Let me ask you, do you have the gift of the Holy Ghost? Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? Does the Holy Ghost have you? I read about an incident just this past week about uh, an Eastern uh, religious person who uh, really wasn't a Christian believer at all, but uh, they they were talking to to someone who was witnessing to him about the Lord Jesus Christ and and told him how that, that, that Christianity is really a supernatural, powerful, personal experience. And he accepted that, but then he posed this question. Why are so many Christians living like that's not the case? See, not everybody has the gift of the Holy Ghost. And some of those that have the Holy Ghost don't also allow the Holy Ghost to have them. It's not just about coming to church on Sunday. It's about allowing to be led by the Spirit. It's being yielded to the Spirit, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. It, it is applying your, your daily walk with Him, following after Him, His precepts, His morality, His values, His vision, His mindset. So this, that, that's really quite telling and quite compelling to get us to re-examine ourselves. Are we living the truth? Are we living our supernatural experience? I know what happened to me when I got the Holy Ghost. And I know what happened to me in subsequent times that God had put on me a special anointing. I mean, he allowed me to feel his presence in a way that I have never felt before. I'm in a physical way. Physical way. In France in 1983, I remember that, that great power that hit me from my fingertips to my elbows, my knees down to my toes. And I'm telling you, it was the first time I, I uttered a message in tongues to that conference that we had at the time. And that spirit was walking up and down, moving up and down my body for three days. It was physical. It was like I was in an electrical force field. It was absolutely incredible. Nobody can tell me that there's no God. October 1985, God healed my back right here. Brother Switzer, this is dear precious sister Switzer right here. We celebrate her 87th birthday this past week. Thursday was her birthday. Hallelujah. If you weren't here Wednesday, oh, hallelujah. Cake and ice cream. This was my pastor's wife. Hallelujah. 
32 years to serve in this church, and she's here still, faithful. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. But her husband prayed for me, took this little oil, this, I anointed me with oil on a Wednesday night service. And I had been suffering with back problems for 14 years. And I was standing and facing surgery. And God healed me instantly. And I've never had a problem since with my back. Never went out again. Before that, I used to walk with a cane when it went out. I used to go to chiropractors, Sister Shayla. I used to have to lay down on my back on my floor, amen, and, and do exercises. I tried everything in the book. I took pills. I limped whenever I went to work. I hurt. I'm telling you, I sympathize with every one of you that had a back problem. But I'm telling you, October 1985. God healed me right here. It was instantaneous. No, I didn't hear the thunder roll. I didn't hear the, the lightning or see it. Amen. I just knew that God healed me and he did. He is alive. Nobody can tell me otherwise. I feel it in my soul. I feel it in my hands. I feel it in my feet. I feel them all over me. I still do. I'm so glad that I can. God is real. Praise God. So... Work on our faith. And is the Holy Ghost working in us? Are we allowing it to? We've got to have faith in that saving name. The only saving name. The name of Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation any other. Listen to me. There is, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one name that can save you. Not a title. It's not the Father. It's not a Son. It's not the Holy Ghost title. Those are all just terms of relationship of God. But His name is Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeshua, Jehovah Salvation, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. Amen. Neither is there salvation than the other. That's why Peter on the day of Pentecost preached. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Amen. Why am I preaching it time and again? I'll tell you why. Because a lot of people haven't heard it yet. There's some here that have never heard it yet. And if somebody is here today and their hearts some minds are open. If you have not repented of your sins, we're going to give you a chance to do that today. If you have never been baptized in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, the only name whereby we must be saved, we can baptize you today. Our water is warm. We've got baptismal robes. We've got hair dryers. We've got towels. We've got everything you need to get it done in 15 minutes or less. Hallelujah. And you can walk away from here, washed away of your sins, cleansed of your conscience, because only thing that can cleanse your conscience uh, even after forgiveness is the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Peter said. Water baptism is not the washing away the filth of the flesh, but it's an answer of a good conscience towards God. Let me ask you, is your conscience clear? If you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus yet, you need to be baptized. Amen. In the name of Jesus Christ, in that saving name. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. And we also believe in the doctrine of holiness. That is another part of the landmark. Like it or not, it is what it is. God said it, God established it, and we're preaching it, we're practicing it, we're endeavoring to fulfill it. And yes, His presence is what makes us holy, 
But it doesn't stop there. His spirit leads us and guides us in all truth. And he tells us what we should be doing and shouldn't be doing. And his spirit, as we yield to it, will help us to be realigned with his will. Help us to realign in our values. Realign with our vision. Realign with judging what is right and wrong in the biblical context. But it's all about holiness, which we lost back in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus Christ came to reestablish that as we are born again and take advantage of the finished work of Calvary. Titus 2, 11 and 13, the Apostle Paul writes to, uh, to Titus, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. See, in the present world, he says, in this present world, we ought to live soberly, righteously, and godly, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Denying it, that means taking up your cross each and every day and denying those lusts, denying those fleshly uh, impetus, uh, that, that those fleshly motivations that would lead you in the wrong direction. You see, that takes real sacrifice. That takes real commitment. That takes loving the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you can take up your cross each and every day is if you fall in love with him and stay in love with him. You can't die for him if you're not willing to live for him. Hebrews 12, 14, the writer says, Follow after peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. I know that many have moved some of these landmarks in our godly heritage. We dare not move it. I'm going to hold on to it. As long as there's breath in my body, I'm going to cherish it. I'm going to cling to it. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to declare it. I'm going to proclaim it because it is the word of God. I'm not preaching for popularity's sake. I never have. That wasn't my, my call. My call is to preach the word of God as it is, as I see it, as God has declared it to me. And it's your responsibility to make sure that I'm in the book. Don't just take it from me. You better take your Bible. You better study it. You better read it for yourself because you're going to stand before God and this is what's going to judge you. It's not my words. It's his words that's going to judge you. I'm declaring it to you the way it is. And it's up to you, your responsibility to put your nose in a book and see whether or not your pastor is preaching the truth. Get convinced of it yourself. Don't just come to church and, and just, you know, give up your thinking cap and, you know, just put it in neutral. No. God forbid. We, we have to be thinking, rational, reasonable Christians. We have to understand what we're doing and why we're doing. We have to know what we believe and why we believe. And if you don't, how can you articulate this and witness to the outside world? Hallelujah. It's serious business. But this, these all belong to our godly heritage. And these are many of our spiritual landmarks. Don't touch the landmarks. Turn it over. Tell them, don't touch the landmarks. Hallelujah. Praise God. I know there are other. Oh, another Pentecostal. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Music to my ears. Thank you, Jesus. And God knows every one of them. He loves children. He loves children. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I wish I would to God we have more of them. 
Can I get an amen? Huh? Come on now. Didn't he say be fruitful and multiply? Huh? Hey, man, I want more kids. Huh. I only have five grandkids, but I'm telling you, I, I could stand for more. Don't tell my kids that. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, we, we, we need more. Hallelujah, folks. We need to, we need to, to pray. Hallelujah. Amen. I, this is the, I don't know. I, I'm just glad we're over COVID. I'm doing more weddings and baby dedications than funerals. I'm glad. I'm glad about it. I'm glad for the, but you know what? You have a relatively short time. And I want you to know we've got a unique opportunity. God is doing great things. And, and the opportunities I've had this just past week also in, in witnessing and, and planting seed is amazing. But we're in the last days. I'm convinced of it. And we have to do our utmost. And, and while we, we are, are looking at the landmarks of the past uh, and we are celebrating our heritage, we, we cannot allow ourselves to sacrifice our future on the altar of yesterday. I said it before and I keep saying it again. Look, I love our past. I love our heritage. I love where we came from. Even in the last 100 years, I love where we came from the last 2,000 years. We got a direct connection to the day of Pentecost. And Peter's first message on, on, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, right on down the line, all the way through the New Testament. It's ours. We're part of that church. But there's a greater future. And God wants to have greater revival. And where we are right now, historically, and politically, economically, financially, in this world is exactly where God placed us and where God placed His church before His imminent return. And I feel so burdened by it. I, I just didn't want to leave this message on, on, on you know, uh, resting on our laurels of the past. I wanted to really focus on what is happening right now and what we should look to in the future. Hallelujah. Jesus is coming soon. I'm happy about what happened in the last 100 years. But I'm not satisfied. I'm looking for greater things. That's why we bought property across the street as well. And over here, I hope in the name of Jesus uh, that by his grace and by his help, we can, we're able to build another building. Amen. Amen. This building was wonderful. But we've got to have a new one all on one level. Amen. Get rid of these stairs. We've got to get the classrooms all. Hallelujah. I, I, I sense something the Holy Ghost there. Or was just a gift of suspicion. I don't know. Praise the Lord. But you know, Jesus is coming soon. And, and Peter even said that in these last days that we live, they're going to be scoffers. They're going to be scoffers saying, well, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming back again? Because from before the time of our ancestors, everything remained the same as when the world began. We got people saying that. We got Christians believing that. Is, really, is Jesus really coming back? Yes, he is. Don't you ever give up on it. That's a word of prophecy. And I want to address that a little bit. Because Peter said this is not negligence or forgetfulness on God's part that he's waiting so long. But it's rather that God is not willing that anybody should perish, but that everybody would come to repentance. He's just giving people more time. He just wants a better populated heaven than he does hell. He's just giving more time. For you and I to get our lives together, to get our act together. Amen. And I, I know that, that, that God sometimes delays things. And, and I know we've been, we've been waiting on him for 2,000 years. And that's okay. He had a big plan. I mean, the world has never seen 7 billion people, 8 billion people on, a, on this planet. But there are now. You mean that means there's a lot more fish in the sea. A lot more souls to populate heaven. 
But this is why our task in these days is so important. It is so urgent. That's why we're supporting so many missionaries. That's why we're going to every part of the world. Why? Because every part of the world must hear this message. Jesus said that the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached unto every nation and then shall the end come. We're close to the end of reaching the last dozen countries. We're only like 11 more countries before we've got the last country done. We've got other territories to reach as yet. I'm not saying that that will immediately bring the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you that the, that the coincidence or the coinciding of this event, that the church is this close to getting all the parts of the world with this particular message and with things like everything else that's going on in the world, it all points to Jesus' imminent return. And I'm just exhorting the church today, make sure that you're ready. Make sure that your bags are packed. Make sure that you're baptized in Jesus' name. Make sure you're filled with the Holy Ghost, full of the Holy Ghost. That's just a part of the Holy Full of the Holy Ghost and fire. Amen. Full of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he is coming soon. Again, I mentioned he, God delays things. He delayed this coming 2,000 years now. But that doesn't mean that, that he's not going to do it. Sometimes uh, he, he fulfills, uh, he, he delays the fulfillment of prophecies. And we know about that. And he delays the uh, execution of judgment sometimes. And that's because, again, God's never in a hurry. We're always in a hurry. God's never in a hurry. He's right on time. He's an on-time God. Romans 3, Romans 8, 22 to 23, just a reference. I didn't give that to you, Sister Ruth. But tells us the whole creation groans and travails together even until now. Even we are groaning within ourselves as we are waiting for the adoption by God. That is the redemption of our bodies. Yes, we've got the Holy Ghost. But this is not what we're taking to heaven. It's got to be transformed. It's got to be glorified for Corruption cannot inherit incorruption. That's why there's got to be a change. And that change can only be accomplished by the indwelling spirit of Almighty God. This is why the message of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is so important. You've got to have the spirit of God. No wonder Paul said, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, it's not of his. Why? Because of their, of their own volition, they never accepted it in. And how are they going to expect to be transformed, to be raptured, to be taken out of this world, to be glorified and taken from this world to the next without the Spirit of God. That's why I'm exhorting you today, make sure that you got the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost has you and you're walking after that spirit yieldedly because we're now in the last moments of the last days. Hallelujah. We're groaning with ourselves. But I'm telling you that even though God delays answering prayers, delaying prophecies, I can tell you that when it's time, when it's time, it will be suddenly. It will be suddenly. That's God's way. It's been 3,000 plus years since God told Eve that the seed of the woman would come and be the savior of the world, the instrument of man's redemption and salvation. It's been thousands of years. Thousands of years. And it took three to 4,000 years until Jesus was born. It was hundreds of years since Isaiah prophesied that a virgin shall bring forth a son. It was almost 700 years before that took place. And that little seed, that child that's born of her shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
It was 400 years before Christ was born that the prophecy came from Malachi. And he said, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And the apostles, Paul said, that in the fullness of time, at the right time, God sent forth his son. And it activated his plan. He carried out his plan from the very beginning that he took on himself flesh. And the Bible says, Paul speaking, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. The promise to Eve was fulfilled when Mary brought forth Jesus, uh, the seed of the woman that would be the instrument of salvation and redemption of mankind. At least 4,000 year old prophecy. God may delay his promise, uh, but when it comes, it comes suddenly. Nobody expected it. Uh, not the generation or the people of the time. Uh, but God will fulfill it. And nobody's expecting uh, and looking forward to the rapture and the, and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm sure as I'm standing here, it's going to happen. And it's going to come at a time when Jesus said, nobody expects it. Uh, so he said, watch and pray that you may be found worthy to be, uh, uh, escape all these things that are coming to pass on the face of the earth. Yes. Suddenly. Hallelujah. Before Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. Then suddenly, Joseph had a revelation also from, from the angel Gabriel. And right after Jesus is born, suddenly an angel appears to the shepherds by night watching their flocks in Luke 2. Then Luke 2.13 says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And we're told in the book of Acts uh, that when Jesus, before he ascended, instructed the disciples to go back to the upper room and wait there till they're endued with power from on high with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. And all his disciples with many women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, went to and all of them went to the upper room. And the Bible says uh, they waited about 10 days for the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, Acts 2, 1 and 4. It says this, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, suddenly, the gift of the Holy Ghost was poured out. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon them. <coughs> Excuse me. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Can I tell you that this was at least a six, seven hundred year old prophecy given by Joel that it shall come to pass on the last day, saith God, that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. It was a fulfillment of a 700 year old prophecy by Isaiah who said with stammering lips and another tongue shall he speak unto this people. Amen. 700 years, 400 years, all these prophecies, but God has a time of fulfillment. And when he's ready, suddenly it comes. Certainly that's the way it was on the day of Pentecost. Hallelujah. Yeah, I'm getting ready to close. Finally, brethren. <coughs> Give me a few minutes. I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. It is thick. And I feel you're paying attention. And you should. And I, I just want you to want to give you a glimpse of the condition of the world that you are 
really feeling and sensing. But I want to put it in the context of, of the past as well. And so listen carefully to everything I'm going to say here for the next few moments because everything I say has a bearing on where we are in the world today. And we're talking about landmarks, and I'm, I, I'm going to reaffirm why these landmarks are so important and why we need to be ready, particularly in this time. But I have to go back to the time when Jesus first came in his advent and what kind of a world he was born into. You've heard of Augustus Caesar in Luke chapter 2 when he uh, came out with the order to tax all the world. And that's, of course, what brought Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem to register for taxation. But I'm going to go back a few years, a few decades before that. I'm going to go into a little bit of the Roman history and what was going on in the world when Jesus was born and the prophecy was fulfilled. And what I'm getting at is pay attention to the details of what the world was like because, you see, the world is in a similar condition today. And in a similar condition is where we're looking for a great revival and a great manifestation of Jesus' return. So when you look at Augustus Caesar, who was the emperor of Rome when Jesus was born, and about oh, 45, 50 years before Jesus was born, before Christ, you understand, B.C., meaning two, we're counting out 2022, right? So when I speak about 45 B.C. or 50 B.C., we're talking about 2022 plus 45 or 50 years, right? And the B.C. years work down in years closer to zero, closer to Christ's birth, uh, and the further back you go, we're speaking almost like in negative numbers, <laughs> okay, in counting years. Uh, and so, so 45 B.C., before Christ was born, Julius Caesar was the dictator of Rome. And I'm not going to go too deep in the Roman hi uh, history, but it's enough to say that, that Rome at the time was in much, much turmoil. Uh, there was a lot of political intrigue, and uh, Julius Caesar was pretty much a dictator, he achieved a triumvirate where three people, two other people with him ruled. Uh, and of course, that, uh, that created a great deal of political turmoil and economic mess, crime in the streets, and so on. You'll see in just a moment. But for decades, the entire Mediterranean region, all the countries around the Mediterranean Sea, that's North Africa and Southern Europe and the Middle East, all was wrapped up and embroiled with wars and violence. Now, this, this man, Augustus Caesar's name was Octavian, okay? And so, so Julius Caesar had, had a, a, a grandson named Octavian. Excuse me, his sister had a grandson named Octavian, whom Julius Caesar named to be the heir to his throne. And this is important, named Octavian. Octavian, to let, tell you up front here, is going to be Augustus Caesar. But this is his roots, Julius Caesar, like 45 B.C., you know, named his sister's grandson, Octavian, to be the next Caesar if he died. Well, as you know, Julius Caesar was assassinated, the Ides of March, right, uh, with Brutus and so on. Uh, and, and so upon his assassination, the empire broke into three parts. And uh, under three leaders, and Octavian obviously was one, and two others really didn't recognize him, but it was Mark Anthony and a man by the name of Lepidus. Now, Lepidus was the weakest of the, all of the leaders, and he was soon eliminated. He was out of the picture, and it just came down to Mark Anthony and Octavian. And Mark Anthony, he wanted to defeat Octavian, but Octavian was a great general and better strategy, really. 
And so Mark Anthony, you know the story about Anthony and Cleopatra. Well, he went to Egypt, and he enlisted her aid and help militarily and economically, and she did. And uh, as a result, in 31 B.C., now we jump from 45 to 31 B.C., 31 years before the birth of Christ, uh, the Battle of Actium took place where these two sides, Octavian and, and Mark Anthony with the Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, on his side. And Anthony and Cleopatra had 500 warships, 100,000 foot soldiers, and 12 horsemen and cavalry. Octavian had only 400 warships, 100 less. 80,000 foot, foot soldiers, that's only 20,000 less. But 12,000 cavalry horsemen as well. And so... Uh, even though that uh, Octavian was outnumbered in some ways, Octavian having a better strategy and better general, better governor, he won the day, he won the battle. And as a result, he became the ruler, the sole ruler of the Roman world, and he took the title of Augustus Caesar. But now, listen to the historian Will Durant, one of my favorite historians, and Brother Brian knows about that. Hallelujah. I got a whole series of history books back there, Oriental Heritage. It's one of the greatest series I've always referred to back in college and, uh, and do my term papers, which my wife ended up typing all the time <laughs> on her lunch hour when she was second downtown in St. Louis. Hallelujah. But <clears throat> Will Durant, one of my favorite uh, historians, uh, and, and, and he, he writes this uh, when uh, the scripture talks about uh, that all the world uh, would be taxed it says Augustus lived in, and, and Jesus would be born into the world of the Mediterranean basin, was wrecked by war, destruction, brutality, and immorality. Now listen to this. The Lusty Peninsula is talking about now Italy itself, that boot-shaped country in the Mediterranean. It said the Lusty Peninsula was worn out with 20 years of civil war. Its farms had been neglected. Its towns had been sacked and besieged. Much of its wealth had been stolen or destroyed. Administration and protection had broken down. Robbers made every street unsafe at night. Highwaymen roamed the roads, kidnapped travelers, and sold them into slavery. Trade diminished. Investment stood still. Interest rates soared. Property values fell. Morals which had been loosened by riches and luxury had not been improved by destitution and chaos. For few conditions are more demoralizing than poverty that comes after wealth. Rome was full of men who had lost their economic footing and then their moral stability. Soldiers who had tasted adventure and had learned to kill Citizens who had seen their savings consumed in taxes and inflation of war and waited vacaciously for some returning tide to lift them back to affluence. Women dizzy with freedom multiplying divorces, abortions, and adulteries. You talk about author writing about 70, 80 years ago. And Jesus was born into the reign of this Augustus. After a long period of wars which had racked the Mediterranean and its shores, political unity had been achieved and the Roman Empire had become roughly con uh, conterminous with the uh, Mediterranean, excuse me, with the, uh, conterminous with the Mediterranean basin. Here and there, it was soon to spread beyond it. 
Augustus was the emperor, building on the foundations laid by his uncle Julius Caesar. He brought peace, and under the guise of the chief citizen of a restored republic, ruled the realm, the realm which for several generations Rome had been building. The internal peace and order which Augustus achieved endured with occasional interruptions for about two centuries. Never before had all the shores of the Mediterranean been under one rule and never had they enjoyed such prosperity. The Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace, made for the spread of ideas and religions over the area where it prevailed. Now notice, that's when Jesus was born. But as a great as man as Caesar Augustus was, he was only a man. And the man who brought the answers also took a dear price. He demanded absolute power over the Roman Empire. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Rome prided itself on being a republic. Did you ever hear that before? You know what a country is, right? It's a republic. Rome prided itself on being a republic, a nation governed by laws, not by any man. The idea that no man was above the law and the Roman Senate and the army and various political leaders lived together in a sometimes difficult arrangement, now Octavius, that Augustus Caesar, would change all that. In 27 BC, he arranged for the Roman Senate to give him the title Augustus, which means exalted and sacred. Now Rome wasn't a republic governed by laws. It was an empire governed by an emperor. The first emperor of Rome was this same Caesar Augustus. And Durant, on the title of Augustus, says, Hitherto the word had been applied only to holy objects and places and to certain creative of augmenting divinities. Applied to Octavian, it clothed him with a halo of sanctity and the protection of religion and the gods. This is why emperor worship was instituted in Rome, beginning with Caesar Augustus, a god. And this says something important about the world that Jesus was born into. It's a world that was hungry for a savior. And a world that was living in the reign of a political savior. But that wasn't enough. And here we are, 2,050 years later, in the same situation. Same kind of inflation, taxation, economic morass worldwide. And it's going to get worse. And you know it is. And what the people are looking for, if you look throughout the world, is political solutions. But the political solutions will never be enough. Because the politicians are not our saviors. There's only one savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? Hallelujah. Well, the world is looking for a political savior, and we know that he will come. He is the Antichrist, the one that will have a solution to all of our problems. The Bible says that when he shall say peace and safety, then sudden, sudden destruction shall come upon them. First Thessalonians 5. Sudden destruction shall come upon them. It's coming. Before he comes to take over the world and rule, Jesus, the real Savior, is coming back for his church and to take us away. He will come suddenly. He will come quickly. 
in a split second. In fact, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We, speaking to the church, shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. First Corinthians, excuse me, First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul tells us that when Jesus returns, stops in the clouds, and the trumpet sounds, the Bible says that dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So Jesus' second coming is really in two parts. One, the secret return. It's where he comes for his church. And he doesn't come to the earth. He just comes into the clouds. And the Bible says we go to him. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. I will come and receive you to myself. I'm not coming to you. You're coming to me. The church is coming to him. And when the trumpet sounds, we are going to him. And when we have the marriage supper of the Lamb seven years later, we're coming back. And that's when all the world shall see him. Every eye shall see him. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. All authority, earthly authority and power shall be subdued and put under his feet. Like it or not, believe it or not, it's the word of God. And there have been so many things from the Word that's already been, been fulfilled. I'm not even getting to the other signs and wonders and, the, and other things that we see. Look, when, when, when look, rain clouds approaching, we're going to take a raincoat and an umbrella, right? Jesus said the same thing. When you see these come to pass, lift up your head, look up, because your redemption draws nigh. And some people are still wondering, is, is this really it? Is this really my time? Is this really the generation? Is this really the time of the second coming? Yes, it is. Stop wondering. Stop vacillating. Get committed to God. Do what you've got to do. Do it now because when the trumpet sounds, there'll be no chance at all to make up the difference. The five foolish virgins tried, the Bible tells us. They tried, brother. They tried, brother Underwood. They tried to get oil in their lamp. And you know what? It was too late. The five wives said, go get it yourself. You can't get it from your neighbor. So song, one of the old songs says, there'll be no time to mend. No time to make amends with God or with your fellow man. You got to be ready now. You got to get ready now and stay ready. Hallelujah. Bow your head with me if you will. I, I, I wish I could convince you. I'm just trying to tell you, you you don't have much time to get right with God don't put anything off don't delay this is your best chance to escape what's come upon the face of the whole world and you may not get another I don't know I don't know what tomorrow holds we're only one breath and we're one heartbeat away from eternity I know what's coming but I'm telling you I don't want to be here 
I want my grand, that's why I'm praying for my grandkids. I, I, I don't want them to inherit this world. God have mercy. My children, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for my grandkids. I'm praying for all of you. I'm praying for all of our children, the children of the world. There's only one way out, church. There's only one way out. Make sure you're ready. I beg of you today, if you've not repented of your sins, I open these altars today to come. Take some time. Take a few minutes of your time. Please, come pray. Make your calling election sure, the apostle said. It's worth it. It's worth your time. If you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, come. Please tell me. I'll take you back. To, I'll baptize you myself. The water is warm. I've got everything you need. The only thing that's keeping you is your pride, perhaps, and your will. Never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you can have it today. Your life will change in a moment. Come, would you? Would you come to the altar? Would you come and talk to the Lord? I open these altars right now for you. Come and just pray before the Lord. Hallelujah. It's better to bow knee now than.